Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is sponsored by Podcorn. So before we get down to the episode, I want to talk about being a podcaster. And I do podcasting full-time, and it's a lot of work. And one of the biggest parts of my job is finding ways to bring money in to keep the lights on, to keep the internet working, all of that. Now, I do it through sponsored episodes, as we've seen with my town histories, and I do it through Patreon. But another way I do it is through Podcorn. Now, Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to amazing podcast sponsorship opportunities, such as host read ads, interview segments, topical discussions, and much more. Now, if you are interested in Podcorn, you can click in my show notes, sign up, and start using it. It's a really, honestly, it's a great service I really enjoy. And it actually helps me bring in money, which I also enjoy. Because money is good, and being a podcaster, sometimes money can be tight. But at least Podcorn can make it a lot easier for me. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. On Saturday, I did an episode all about the October Crisis of 1970, a watershed moment in Canadian history, and the last time we ever saw the War Measures Act enacted. Today, I'm talking with Darcy Jenish, who wrote a book called The Making of the October Crisis, Canada's Long Nightmare of Terrorism at the Hands of the FLQ. I was going to include clips of my interview with Darcy in that Saturday episode, but I decided, you know what, let's actually just talk to him as part of an interview episode, because it was a really great interview. So let's just get right to it. People think sure. of the October Crisis, it's, it's all about essentially October. It's, people see it as this one month of Canadian history, but um, your book shows that this is something that began several years earlier, uh, as early as 1963. So why do we focus so much on October 1970, but not 1963 to 1970? Well, I mean, obviously, October was the culmination of this, and it was, it was just such a shocking event. I mean, it's like... Whoever thought we'd have politically inspired uh, kidnappings in uh, in Canada, and of course it's it's a condensed event. It was easy to get your mind around, and uh, you know I think the other thing, frankly, that's happened is um, it has suited the interest of the sovereignty movement in Quebec to focus exclusively on this because they have never accepted Pierre Trudeau's handling of this crisis, and in fact. <clears throat> they've spun what I would call revisionist narratives out of this event. Uh, namely, they, they say that the use of uh, Canadian soldiers, uh, the deployment of Canadian soldiers to Montreal and other Quebec cities constituted, quote, and I quote this, the occupation of Quebec, which is absolutely absurd because, I mean, an army of occupation by definition has to come from beyond national borders to you know, seize territory, oppress the populace, et cetera. I mean, <clears throat> there were, there were Anglo, you know, Canadian soldiers, like Anglophone soldiers from the Canadian Airborne Regiment came in from Edmonton. Uh, there was a French uh, battalion within that regiment, but what really puts the lie to this occupation of Quebec phrase is that the Van Dues, the Royal 22nd Regiment, the Regiment of French Canada, they were deployed to Montreal. So these are native Quebecers and sons of Montreal. Uh, so, <clears throat> and the second thing that the sovereignist movement has said is that the Trudeau government used the October crisis as a pretext for crushing the independence movement. You know, 
by first uh, call, you know, deploying Canadian soldiers, imposing the War Measures Act, and then arresting these nearly 500 people, uh, you know, without uh, without charging most of them. So it has certainly served, I would say, the interest of the sovereignty movement to focus exclusively on the October crisis, because then they could spin this revisionist narrative out of out of the events uh, by saying that you know this is Ottawa beating up on Quebec again. Um, now that said, you know the whole October crisis is in, has been a much bigger event in Quebec than it has been in the rest of Canada, and so. Uh, like most historical events, you know, everything that happened in the run-up, the seven and a half years of urban terrorism that preceded the October crisis, just kind of gets lost. And mm -hmm. so for people outside of Quebec, you know, the October crisis is an easy thing to focus on and get your mind around, oh, there was two kidnappings, you know, a British diplomat or Quebec uh, cabinet minister. So I think that's why, uh, for all those reasons, the October crisis has come to be what we know about these events. Um, for people out in Western Canada, say for like myself, I, I grew up in Alberta, <clears throat> you're aware of the FLQ, but you don't really know much about them beyond the October crisis. So uh, who were they and how, how did they kind of come to form uh, in, in Quebec? Well, it, it flowed right out of the legitimate independence movement. I mean, uh, you know, you start with the 1960 uh, Quebec provincial election where Jean Lesage's liberals beat the Union Nationale. The Union Nationale had been in power uh, for all but four years between 1935 and 1960. So that's what, 25 years, you know, out of 25 years, they're in power 21. And those uh, Union Nationale years came to be known as the Grand Noir Sur, the Great Darkness of Quebec, because Quebec was culturally and socially remained backwards. This was under Maurice Duplessis, Le Chef. Um, although Quebec advanced materially and economically, Quebec advanced greatly, especially in the post-war period, 1945 to 60. But Lesage is elected, uh, people want to change and he comes into power with, uh, with a, a program of, of you know, very sharp, dramatic change, which comes to be known as the Quebec Quiet Revolution. And uh, coincident with that, Lesage is elected in uh, June 1960. And in September or October 1960, this group of intellectuals, academics, lawyers, etc., they gather at a resort in the Laurentians and they form Le Rassemblement pour l'Independence Nationale. And that was the RIN that came to be known. And the RIN was the first kind of credible independence movement. There wasn't a party, but it was a movement. And they formed a youth wing. And out of this youth wing came some guys, some young kids who they didn't have any patience for the political processes and for the long, you know, hard slog of changing public opinion and all the rest of it. So they formed this little group called the Réseau de Résistance. And they went around painting stop signs and vandalizing things. And then out of the Réseau de Résistance, these three young men, uh, Raymond Villeneuve, Gabriel Houdon, and George Shoulders, formed the Front de Libération du Québec in March of 1963. And they considered the, the guys, obviously they didn't have the patience for the RIN, and the Réseau de Résistance were just wet hens who ran around painting signs, in their opinions. And so they wanted something more radical, and they started, uh, the first thing they did was a bombing campaign. And so in the spring of April, 
May of 1963, you had this series of bombings uh, in Quebec. And it just went on from there. So it was these three young guys. And you have to understand the FLQ. So it went from the spring of 1963 right through till the October crisis. And uh, it was always uh, an, an underground revolutionary movement. It was a movement as opposed to an organization. So there was no any, there wasn't a coordinating committee. There was no nothing that said you had to do this or that. They had no bylaws or anything, anything written down that said this is what the FLQ is. Mm -hmm. um, so it was very easy for people to come in and out and pull a bunch of stuff and say we're FLQ. Uh, and, but it was also at the same time very hard for the authorities to get real control of this this movement, which was just kind of permeated, you know, this strata of Quebec society, these radical young people who were out there mainly in Montreal. And it was sort of like, of course, the virus almost, if you like, <laughs> very hard to track it down, very hard to get it under control. And that's why, of course, it went on for so long. Right. Uh, so what kind of got you to decide to, to write the book and, and was 1963 always kind of where you thought you'd kind of start with it? Well, it, it was one of these things that came around a little bit by chance, I have to admit. I, I just did a 40th anniversary story, you know, as a freelance magazine writer, uh, 2010, 40th anniversary of the October crisis. So I pitched, I was doing some writing for Legion magazine. I'd done some writing for them for about five years at that point. So they took a story on the 40th anniversary and I made a couple phone calls to, I didn't really even know what I was going to do with this story. I mean, it was just, you know, cause I didn't know much about it myself to tell you the truth. I was only 18 at the time of the October crisis. So, uh, so one or two phone calls later, I'm talking to this Robert Cote guy who was a uh, head of the Montreal bomb squad from 1966 to 76. And he actually was, right in at the but he joined the bomb when they formed the bomb squad in may of 63 he joined it immediately he was a police constable working in point saint charles which is a rough and was a rough and tumble neighborhood at the time and he was a native montrealer so he joins the the bomb squad anyways cote was a, an extraordinary individual uh and a, an exceptional living witness to history he dismantled 31 bombs with his bare hands and uh <laughs> You know, he just, he was, and he was also a guy who was great on history. So he laid out the whole thing for me, gave me this snapshot of how the FLQ, this rain, this, how this urban terrorism unfolded from 63 to 70. And it came in waves. So I wrote this magazine story and then talked to my publisher. And as it happened, I, I happened to have owed them a book for a contract I'd signed a few years earlier. So boom, it just, everything met. And it was, and you know, it was just fortuitous in a way. And of course, what I found was like, as soon as I had this one from one conversation with Robert Cote, I realized I didn't know, I have a clue about this stuff. I hadn't, didn't know that there was, like I was like every other Canadian of my generation, not every other Canadian, but a lot of like people I talked to when I was doing the book, they would remember these Westmount mailbox bombs, which was, uh, they were planted in uh, May of 1963 on the Thursday night of leading into the uh, May 2-4 weekend, which of course back in the day was the Victoria Day holiday weekend, mm -hmm. or in Quebec, La Fête de la Reine, and they hated that, you know. Uh, the Queen was just the ultimate symbol of, you know, English colonialism and domination. So these kids made, one of, this, one of these kids, and he was only 18 years old or so, made 10 of these bombs. They had three sticks of dynamite, 
half pound each, and they planted them in 10 mailboxes in Westmount. And Westmount was a Anglo uh, suburb of Montreal. It's right in the heart of Montreal, but it was a separate municipality. And actually, it was a, a wealthy enclave, an enclave for wealthy Anglos, and especially the business elite of Quebec. So again, you got La Fête de la you've got Westmount, which they said was more British than Britain at the time. And that's a real symbol of, you know, a living symbol of, of uh, Anglo domination. So these kids plant these, these 10 mail uh, bombs in the mailboxes and five of them exploded in the middle of the night. So everybody knows, and I knew, had some vague notion that there were these mailbox bombs. And if I talked to an air, you know, a person of my age that I was telling them I was doing this book on the FLQ, they would say, oh yeah, kidnappings and mailbox bombs. But between the mailbox bombs and the kidnappings, there's like seven and a half years of terrorism, <laughs> 200 bombings, dozens of bank robberies, mm -hmm. uh, six people killed. I didn't know any of that. So mm -hmm. suddenly I realized here's this massive, you know, this gap in my own understanding of these events but as I discovered as I was doing this what we've got is is collective amnesia about these events and the country knows nothing about you know what happened in those 60 those years between really the spring of 63 and the summer of 1970 and then mm -hmm. leading up into the, uh, the October crisis. Uh, kind of in relation to that um when I was growing up in the in the 90s, it was part of our school curriculum to learn about the October crisis. You know, I remember very clearly watching videos of Trudeau when he's being interviewed and he's saying, just watch me. But uh, is the October crisis, <clears throat> excuse me, 50 years later, is that something that might be kind of fading uh, into history despite its large impact on Canada? Like it's not maybe as well known as it was even just 20 years ago? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's really faded. I mean, uh, you know, now I have children the same age as you who were going through school in the 90s and you know, maybe into high school in the early 2000s. And they, would, they, they all got a quick pass through the October crisis. And, you know, they all knew that two people had been kidnapped. Mm -hmm. uh, but for sure, I mean, even people of my generation uh, had no knowledge of, of any of this beyond. Uh, and people have confused, oh, was it Laporte or Cross or which died, da-da-da-da-da. So yeah, it's definitely done a fade, you know, except in Quebec. And I'm not, uh, I've done my best to understand Quebec and, uh, but it's, it, excuse me, it's still a very sensitive subject there. Um, no publisher would translate my book, you know, like you'd wonder why. I mean, if it generated <laughs> controversy, it might lead to some book sales, but no. Um, but yeah, no, it's still a sensitive subject there. And, um, I don't quite understand. I can't, you know, really tell you how or why. But everybody says, "Oh, it's still a still a sensitive subject here." So I don't think they like to. Uh, well, I suppose for Quebecers, uh, you know, they of course, because of the stuff that's been spun by the uh, the sovereigntist movement, they've never accepted Trudeau's handling of the October crisis, and it they've just kept it's and it's got into their school system and the academics have treated it a certain way and so it, they feel that the quebec got beat up i think mm -hmm. and it was the federal government ganging up and beating up on quebec and so it's uh it's a different story there and of course i, I as i discovered i mean we still have the two solitudes in canada i mean honestly uh they have a big quebec publishing industry that you know 
nobody, I wasn't aware of any of these publishing houses until I crossed the river across the, the line and, and went over there and started, you know, looking into this stuff. Mm-hmm. There's a whole literature about, there's a whole literature about the, about the uh, October crisis in Quebec, but in Canada, it was totally forgotten. I mean, this is the first book in English that's a complete account of the, of mm-hmm. the FLQ and the October crisis. I mean, once it was over, we just said, you know, washed our hands of it, boom, boom, done with that, let's <laughs> move on. Quebec, it was, a, it was a, a wound, if you like, that never really healed. The, yeah. And I think it was the, they weren't, it wasn't the fact that they were, you know, hurt by their own people. It was that they were hurt by the federal government. So it was just a sore point in Quebec 50 years on. It's still a sore point in Quebec. Um, if we look at it from the first bombings in 1963 to October 1970, uh, like you mentioned, it was hard to control the FLQ because it was kind of a loose organization. But how were things able to get from the point where you have these bombings seven years earlier to the point where the federal government has to step in with the army, implement the War Measures Act? Well, you know, it was up until the uh, up until the October, up until the kidnapping of James Cross, who is a, you know, a British diplomat, uh, up until then, you know, it's an internal thing where it's just these kids uh, with their bombs, uh, you know, attacking, you know, all, all kinds of things. I mean, people's homes, the homes of private businessmen, they bombed the Montreal Stock Exchange, they bombed the Montreal. There were two bombs planted outside Montreal City Hall on New Year's Eve 1968. February 1969, they bombed the Montreal Stock Exchange. September 1969, somebody bombs Mayor Jean Drapeau's house. I mean, he, they had an external staircase that went down to the basement. These guys planted a bomb at the bottom of the staircase. It blew up at five o'clock in the morning and, and did major damage to the basement, buckled the floorboards and the, and the ground floor. The mayor's wife and one of his kids were sleeping upstairs. So as serious as it was, it was really an internal matter, um, you know, for the police to try to control this, this stuff. Uh, once you... Uh, kidnap a a diplomat it becomes a federal matter because it's you know this is affecting the the foreign relations of the country so the federal government there again you see this is something else that the that the um quebec the sovereigntists have never accepted against part of their revisionist narrative is that uh you know trudeau came in pushed robert bourassa aside he took control from the beginning uh, but the fact is, once it was a British a foreign diplomat, that by necess- necessity involves the federal government. They have to be in the lead role in trying to s- deal with this. And they were the one, you know, so the federal government, I mean, Cross is kidnapped Monday, October 5th. Uh, so from Monday through the following Saturday, uh, it's the federal government that's dealing with it. They're saying, no, we will not negotiate. We're not going to, uh, you know, spring. They wanted to, they wanted uh, to use, the hostage was taken as blackmail to compel the governments to release 13 of these uh, Felkis, these terrorists who were in prison, some of whom were serving life sentences for murder and the like. Mm-hmm. So that's what it was. It was an attempt at blackmail or extortion. And of course, you know, uh, you're you're then getting into overturning court decisions. Uh, but basically, because it was a foreign diplomat, the federal government had to take the lead role. 
And the sovereigntists have always sold this as, you know, Quebec, uh, the Fed's coming in, pushing the provincial government aside, taking the lead role. Now, of course, when they kidnap uh, Pierre Laporte on Saturday, October 10th, which, by the way, was the Saturday evening of the Thanksgiving weekend, it was a horrible thing that, that happened. Mm-hmm. Then, of course, it's a provincial matter as well, because he's a provincial politician. And, you know, the Bourassa government is suddenly equal partners in this dealing with this. And they agreed not to negotiate. So um, that's why, uh, you know, from 63 through till Monday, October 5th, 1970, it's really a, a police matter dealt with internally to try to suppress uh, these guys. But once you get a foreign diplomat involved, then the federal government has to get involved and take the lead role in making the decisions as to whether we negotiate with these guys or not. It, uh, <clears throat> it really seems like, and not to minimize the, the bombings, but it seems like they, you know, they do the bombings and then to, to quote Spinal Tap, they take it to 11 with suddenly creating this international incident by kidnapping yes. a, a British diplomat. Like, it just seems like such a, a, a cranking up of the severity in, of what they're doing by, by doing uh, something like that. And like you said, getting the federal government involved. Um, could we see something like the FLQ ever emerge again? Um, obviously things are very different than they were 50 years ago. Uh, the FLQ is mm-hmm. mostly gone, but could we see a, a, something like a crisis like that ever emerge again in, in Quebec or even anywhere in Canada? It's hard to see, you know, I mean, that, you know, people say, what was the legacy of all of this? And well, one one of the lasting results was that we've never seen anything comparable to this. I mean, I think it was a unique, I think it was unique to the times. I mean, like there was a lot of radicalism uh, in the air, uh, certainly in the United States with the anti-war movement. In Europe, there was uh, many of these types of, uh, you know, radical you know, left-wing movements. Uh, And you were going through a period in the 60s also where you had this turbulence and upheaval in in Quebec society where suddenly everything was changing. I mean, you went from a a society that was dominated by the church and by the the Catholic church, and it was a sort of priest-ridden society. You know, the churches handled uh, education, uh, social assistance and well, the social, and, uh, uh, the, the hospital, you ran the hospitals, the schools, and basically your, your social services. Uh, and then you go, you go from that almost overnight into a secularization of society. You get this, say, this uh, demands for independence, this movement starts to arise. So it was a unique moment. And the other thing you have to take into consideration um, is that this was the end of the kind of baby boom era. See, in Quebec, this was the last of the these were like all these kids in their, uh, you know, in the 60s. These are kids that are in their teens, early 20s. They're part of the post-war baby boom. This is the last of the eight, nine, 10 kid Quebec families. So you have all of these, uh, you have this huge cohort of young kids, uh, t- late teens, early 20s in Montreal in the 1960s because of these enormous uh, baby boom families. And they were the, this was the, the fertile ground for re- radical ideas. I mean, it wasn't just, you know, there was constant street demonstrations in Montreal in the, in the 60s, you know, during Victoria Day, Dominion Day, all kinds of demonstrations. So there was a lot of turbulence in the air. Um, 
And one of the interesting things is that if you want to take then and now, was that one of the rationale for the bombings was when these guys would get into court or get, you know, questioned is, well, what were you thinking? Why did you do this? And one of the one of their standard responses was, well, we were trying to wake people up to see, they saw their parents. These were, and again, these would be kids of working class, blue collar uh, Quebec families uh, who had seen their fathers be the, the blue collar guys while the managers were all the angles. So they grew up in that environment and they were, and so they're trying to wake up their, their older generation. And, and the, the sort of polemics that were out there or the way that the kind of intellectuals kind of who were behind this movement, they portrayed Quebecers as not as a minority within Canada, but as a colonized, you know, oppressed and exploited people, they were called, they were just colonized. So they were trying to apparently wake up their elders to the fact that they were, you know, they were colonials who were oppressed and uh, exploited. Um, but what, so now all of these guys, 50 years later, what you've got is, you know, the sun is really setting on the, on the sovereignist dream. I mean, all these aging separatists, you know, the leaders of the movement of all the, the, the real firebrands, Levesque and Parizeau and all of these intellectual leading lights, they've all passed away. And that whole generation of kids, so many of whom were, you know, involved in this stuff or knew people or were part of that broader milieu of radicalism in the 60s, they, they, all, they all just morphed into the legitimate sovereignty movement. And of course, they're all aging now and they're seeing the sunset on their dream <laughs> and they're trying to pick up the new generation of Quebecers. So you had a total role reversal, <laughs> but of course, the new generation of Quebecers, uh, the young kids today, maybe your generation of Quebecers, mm -hmm. you, you know, you grew up in the 90s, whatever, you know, they're probably like you. They've got the Internet. They travel. They're worldly. They're again. See, it's a totally different world. Uh, young people in Quebec are more plugged into the world. They're less just inward looking. Whereas back in the sixties when all this happened, it was more of a, an inward looking, you know, th their world was Quebec. Mm -hmm. um, so, but yeah, so for all those reasons, I know I just get to be long convoluted answers, but <laughs> I really don't believe that we would see this happen again. And if we did, first of all, we would not, there is an emergency measures act. This is the other thing that out of the, uh, what came out of the October crisis was the War Measures Act was, you know, a blunt instrument to say the least. I mean, it was a relic of World War One. It was modeled on the British legislation that was passed at the start of World War One. And in fact, you know, the government of the day, the Borden government, just took the le the British legislation, you know, whatever hook, line, and sinker, and just they just implemented it here. And then they left it on the books. Mm -hmm. And then come World War Two. You know, Mackenzie King invokes the War Measures Act. I mean, it, and it's it's pervasive in what you can do. I mean, you can take control of commerce and the economy from coast to coast, shipping, roads, highways, manufacturing. It, you could just about turn the country into a dictatorship. So mm -hmm. it conferred upon the government's vast powers. Then they they happened. To, they just left the book. This law sitting on the books after the war, whereas Britain wisely you know, drafted legislation that would be more appropriate <laughs> for a civil emergency. So when, when the October crisis came along, it was like, well, what the heck did we do? You know, this was the only tool in the <laughs> toolbox. They took it out and they, 
you know, and you know, so that again, uh, and, but and then, but it's all in regulations. Mm-hmm. So the regulations were really narrowly defined. They just outlawed uh, any organizations, movements, or otherwise that advocated the use of force of violence to achieve, you know, political ends. They narrowed down the use of it, which is why, you see, which is why it's a complete falsehood for the, the sovereignist movement to say that Trudeau or the Trudeau government was trying to crush their movement because <clears throat> the regulations that accompanied the uh, implementation of Proclamation of War Measures Act specifically stipulated that it would only make they only made it illegal to belong to an organization or to participate in activities uh, that that constituted violence to, to you know uh, advocated the use of violence or force to achieve political goals and in fact uh, by October on October 18th 1970 two days after the uh, implementation of the uh, implementation of the War Measures Act the Parti Québécois' own lawyer, Hache Furlan, had drafted a uh, legal opinion on the implications of the War Ministers Act. It was presented to a meeting in the National Council of the uh, Parti Québécois and later published in the Parti Québécois' newsletter. And he said that clearly this law does not apply to us. We can do, we can continue to be uh, be active in our party. We can pursue our our policies and, and program, we can criticize the government, we can demand the withdrawal of the War Measures Act. So <clears throat> it was, you know, unfortunately, it was the only tool in the toolbox. It was a real blunt instrument, <laughs> but they narrowed it down. So they almost turned it from the, the blunt instrument into the scalpel to say, this is what, what we want to do. And that's why they arrested these. You know, I did give the, the police the right to kind of suspend civil liberties, mm-hmm. because um, tell me if I'm going on too long. Oh, no, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, but anyways, like the police already had their list of people drafted. They started <laughs> earlier in the week, the people who they were going to arrest if they got mm-hmm. this through. So that, so the document was signed off on, you know, at four o'clock in the morning. Uh, well, Trudeau had already signed off on it, but anyways. So anyways, it went into effect at four o'clock in the morning, Friday, October 16th. By six o'clock in the morning, police are knocking on people's doors and hauling them <laughs> off to jail. By the end of that day, they had two or three hundred people in jail, and they weren't arrested on any specific charges. I mean, I shouldn't be laughing at this, but uh, but most of them, in reality, were detained for only a few minutes, for a few hours, a few days at most. And I mean, there was only maybe 15, 20 of these guys out of the five, four hundred ninety-five, I believe, who were ever charged with criminal offenses. But they needed to be able to question the people. The police needed to be able to question people, check out their stories uh, to ensure that, you know, that they weren't really involved. And the other thing that was in, in the background of this that, again, always gets forgotten is that there were thousands of uh, college and university students in the city of Montreal who were preparing to leave their classrooms to demonstrate their support for the uh, kidnappers. And they were going to, you know, in the streets. And again, the authorities had seen how many street demonstrations there had been in the 60s. They'd seen the St. Jean-Baptiste Day riot. There was a, a school riot over language rights in the schools of St. Leonard, which was a Montreal suburb. That was in September 1969. In October 1969, there was a third riot. So, you know, within the space of 16 months, you had three riots in the city of Montreal. 
not to mention more peaceful street demonstrations. So when you see the prospect of thousands of kids pouring out of their classrooms into the streets, what the authorities see coming is you know, rioting, chaos, and bloodshed in the streets of Montreal. So boom, you had to shut that down, uh, plain and simple. So, and there's a very simple equation, I think for, and really it was Bourassa or John Drapeau and Robert Bourassa were the real drivers of the War Measures Act. They demanded it. And, the, and Drapeau, he knew what was going on in that city. They bombed his house. He'd seen all the riots. <laughs> And so it came down to a very simple equation for the, the, the three leaders who were in, a, in power at that moment. You had to preserve public order for the many, had to take precedence over the civil rights of the few. Mm-hmm. And it was just that simple. Because, you know, to be live in a perfect world where we're going to be absolutely um, vigilant and uphold these civil rights for this small, tiny 500 people at the cost of chaos in the streets, no politician would ever allow that. And all the people who've criticized uh, Trudeau, Bourassa, and Drapeau over the years, I can guarantee you, if they were in any one of those three seats, they would have made exactly the same decision. Absolutely. Um, very, very easy for it to kind of escalate out of control. If, if Well, it, it would have. I mean, yeah. you know, look look what happened in, uh, I think it was a, what the, what they call the Le Printemps de Rabla, the Maple Spring in 2012. Mm-hmm. You saw these kids... You know, this is 2012. Those students in, in Quebec, in Montreal, paralyzed the city of Montreal practically because they were going to raise the lowest tuition fees in North America to something comparable to what other kids are paying. But night after night of demonstrations that <clears throat> that just choked that city. So, you know, there within recent memory is a demonstration. We've seen the Stanley Cup riots in <laughs> <from> 1993. <laughs> Canadians win the Stanley Cup, boom, city explodes. Yeah. So imagine, imagine the explosion that could have occurred in October 1970. And, you know, you would have had police out there. And I will say this, that the police were not the most skilled at dealing with riots in the 1960s. I mean, at the, you know, they were tended to ride into the charge into the crowd with, you know, their bludgeon sticks and start beating people. Uh, so it would have been a mess. It would have been a mess. I mean, without a doubt, people would have died. And you know, you can just imagine. So, so for people today to sit there and criticize Trudeau uh, for implementing the War Measures Act and for the for the sus- suspension of civil rights for this tiny group of people, let's not forget the newspapers are still publishing, the TVs are still publishing. Everybody was having their say, except those people who got hauled off to jail. Absolutely. Um, and then uh, just the last question is, what do you hope people get from from reading your book? Because like you said, you're kind of shedding light on something, especially in Western Canada, where, like I said, we focus on October 1970, the War Measures Act, two guys are kidnapped, mm-hmm. FLQ. That's kind of everything we yeah. learned in social studies. So what do you hope people get from uh, reading your book? Well, I hope they just uh, get their eyes open to what happened, to how serious this was, that what can happen. I mean, uh, you know, when things kind of escalate out of control, uh, it's really just kind of a history lesson, I guess, and a realization that, you know, uh, we have had, you know, violent episodes in this country. And I mean, that's the other thing. This is just, you know, this is one incident. I mean, I don't think we tend to forget about 
you know, conscription riots during the First World War, some of the, you know, there's been a lot of civil dis disturbances in Canada over the years. I mean, the 1919 Winnipeg general strike, I mean, uh, you know, you had the things that happened during the depression, uh, you know, we, we don't realize really how hard it is to govern and to run this country and to manage it and really how lucky we've been. I always say that, you know, we've enjoyed a surplus of social harmony in this country that, you know, many people are willing to throw away, especially, I mean, I'm not just talking about Western Canada, but I have friends, very uh, Ontario centric friends uh, who, that whole response, let Quebec go, let them go, get rid of yeah. them. You know, a lot of people believe that. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so that's not something that get, comes directly into my book. But, you know, what happened in, in uh, Quebec in the 1960s was, you know, a serious disruption to the, to the social harmony. And it can happen. And when it does, it gets ugly. Mm -hmm. And uh, we should never take for granted the fact that we enjoy so much social harmony in this country, even if it is, at, there's a price that usually is we have to accommodate Quebec sometimes, other people that we disagree with. Uh, so I would hope that maybe people would realize that uh, even in this peaceful, generally well-run country where we tend to get along, things can spin out of control, <laughs> did spin out of control. And uh, thank God it's never happened again. <laughs> Exactly. Uh, so, you know, other than, and so I'm just, yeah, certainly at the at, at a basic level, I hope I'm just filling in the blank for a lot of people that, re, you know, I think everybody that's read the book, I mean, a lot of the reader feedback I get is, you know, it's like, oh my God, I didn't realize all this happened. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly it, you know. Um, I didn't put this into the book or into any grandiose conclusions, but I clearly, you know, I do believe we've had this, this as I say, a surplus of social harmony you know, we very often have uh, deficits on the financial side of things, but at least on the social side, we've gotten along. We should always be grateful for that and realize that there has been times in our history when, you know, things have spun out of control and we've had, you know, unbelievable violence, really. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Darcy Janesh. And if you did, please leave a rating and review. You can reach me at craig at canadaehx.ca or you can visit my website and find hundreds of articles as well as all of my podcast episodes at canadaehx.ca. You can also support the podcast by going to Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx, just like all of these wonderful patrons have. Aaron O'Hara, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, Spencer M., and Iris Gray. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.